Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 8th, 2011, and my guest is Robert Frank, the H.J. Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics at Cornell University. His latest book is The Darwin Economy. Bob, welcome back to Econ Talk. Always fun to talk to you, Russ. Bob, your book attempts to make a case for government regulation on libertarian terms, and, and you challenge those of us who have a free market uh, bent to uh, confront what you say, are contradictions in our viewpoint or possible contradictions. It's also an indictment of anti-government arguments generally. And I want to start with that indictment and then turn to your defense of government intervention. So you start the book by arguing that we're in a terrible mess. Uh, you call it paralysis because of an anti-government mentality and ideology. What's the argument there? You know, we've been hearing, I, th- I think it accelerated when Ronald Reagan came onto the national stage, but the the last several decades at least have have seen a, a crescendo of anti-government rhetoric that if we could just get government out of the way, everything would be fine. Government's the source of the problem. Grover Norquist's famous quote, I don't want to eliminate government, I just want to shrink it to the point when I, where I could haul it into my bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. Uh, I think there is a general skepticism of government, and so I think when when there are circumstances in which uh, government is really the only actor poised to take effective action against a problem, we're not able to move quickly. We're not able to move at all oftentimes. Yeah, that I think it's true that certainly uh, since the 80s, there's been a rise in philosophical defenses of, of free markets, and you can attribute that to cultural phenomena and the work of Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek, and certainly – in recent – in the last couple of years, Hayek has, has been on the rise. But it doesn't seem to have mattered very much. That, that's the part I find um, troubling and mystifying really about the argument when I hear it as you present it. For example, you quote – you say in the book on page 51, quote, For now, the most press, pressing issue is that although many extremely important tasks remain to be done, government has no money. And yet government spent – end quote. And yet government spending is at an all-time high – certainly at the federal level and even often at the state level where you talk about problems in California due to uh, Prop 13. Yes, Prop 13 limited property taxes, but it didn't stop government spending. So where's the evidence that this rhetoric has any real impact on the size of government or the scope of it? Uh, tax collections now are probably at the the lowest point since 1950 as a, a share of GDP. It's true right now government expenditures are fairly high as a fraction of GDP, but that's almost entirely a consequence of the automatic expenditures that are triggered by a distressed labor market. We've got Medicare payments, Medicaid payments going out in in much larger volumes than normal, unemployment insurance. Uh, The the high expenditure levels now are, are not a consequence of a rising share of GDP going to government. They're they're really a, a temporary aberration that reflects the 
depth of the current downturn. Well, there are some automatic stabilizers, but that $820 billion of stimulus wasn't part of that. Uh, we're spending $3.6 or $7 trillion this year, uh, some of that due to the recession. But certainly, let's go back to pre-recession, 2005, 2006, at, again, to take the state level, uh, state of California spending was dramatically high, federal government dramatically high. Uh, it was historically in the ballpark. It was toward the high end of peacetime proportion of GDP before the recession lowered that denominator. Um, I'm going to argue, and I get your take on this, I'm going to argue government does too much. It's, it's not that it's uh, hasn't shrunk. And that anti-government mentality had, in my mind, and again, we could debate it, I guess, virtually zero impact on, on the real world. It's restrained some stuff, but I don't see any impact that that free market ideology has had much of an effect on the big picture. Instead, government's expanded to do a bunch of stuff it doesn't do very well. Well, if you look internationally, though, Russ, I think uh, we're really at the low end of the scale in terms of the share of economic activity that's accounted for by government. The, That's true. the national health sector is is very large in the U.S. It's mostly private. Uh, in most countries, it's public, so that's part of the difference. But if you look just at the growth in government spending uh, here, it's been actually quite modest compared to international standards, and I think that's got to, in the end, be a reflection of the kind of anti-government sentiment we're talking about. The question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I gather you think it's a good thing that government expenditures have grown more slowly here than they have elsewhere. Uh, people here are generally not happy with their government. We're, we're quite suspicious of our government. I think the, the ranking of the U.S. on the Transparency International's scale of perceptions of corruption in government, we rank 21st on that scale among nations. Uh, the, the what's a high, what's the a good, where do you want to be? No, where do you want to be? Every year, there are lots of countries where people really think their government's doing a good job, and they're typically the kind of countries that somebody would think about moving to if somebody stuck a gun to their head and said, "Well, you can't live here anymore. You got to choose another place." Those countries would be at the top of almost anyone's list uh, as a place to move to. The the countries at the bottom of the Transparency International list. Those are countries that you wouldn't want to move to. I wouldn't want to move to Haiti, Afghanistan, Somalia, Somalia, the Zimbabwe. Sudan, the the <laughs> countries that have weak, ineffective governments. Those aren't places anybody would want to move to. No, that's true. And as you point out in the book, there's a correlation issue. You don't know which way causation runs. It obviously runs it in goes both, both directions ways for, for sure. sure. But I think the, you know the international comparison is an interesting one. I, I I certainly accept the point, and I think it's uh, true that we have a different culture. American culture, the average American views government differently than, than many in many other places. And that is part of the reason we have a smaller government. We've historically had a different political system, which was it, part of the reason. It's interesting to think about why that is, too. I, I, I've uh, often wondered why we're so different from Europe and the rest of the developed world on that, on that particular dimension. And my guess is that, that it's two things. Uh, one, the people who came here to start the U.S. were people who were running away from government, Absolutely. who had a, a perception that government was uh, a tyrannical uh, force in their lives. They Which would, it was. Yeah. They wanted to get away from that. <laughs> yeah. And more important than that, I don't think that lasts 200 no, years. It's hard but to, yeah. More important than that, I think 
you, you see government acting when people bump up against each other and cause problems for each other. Uh, that's, that's really the source of most demands for government intervention in, in almost every sphere. And, and here we had the, the, the Western frontier for most of our history. When people bumped up against each other and started getting in each other's way, it was easy enough just to move west and, and, and escape the problem that way. We've, we've run out of options to do that, so I think now we're going to ha- have to come more face-to-face with the, the question of what to do when your behavior hurts me or my behavior hurts you. Uh, we used to just run away from that. Now we have to deal with it. Interesting argument. I think the the 200-year-ago problem that you mentioned, the, that, that hypothesis that it was the founding fathers' uh, intellectual heritage, of course, they – put in place a set of constraints on government as a result of that feeling, and they did last a very long time. Those started to unravel in the first part of the 20th century, and they've steadily unraveled. We've moved away uh, very much from their vision of what the proper role for government is, and I think that is part of the reason we're more like Europe. You do want to add in state and local spending, of course, and when you do that, we are a little closer to Europe than the federal numbers suggest, which is somewhat uh, can be somewhat misleading. Um, I also would challenge your argument about the bumping up against each other. That's what the textbooks, that's what we teach our students, right? We teach our students that the demand for government comes from public goods and externalities. And, of course, we're going to get into externalities in a little bit because uh, that's a big theme of your book. But that's not what I see government doing. That's part of my claim that government's too big and got away from its core competencies. Uh, a lot of what government does isn't to keep us from hurting each other. It's to hurt one of us at the expense to benefit somebody else. And it's that cronyism part of government that a lot of us who are anti-government, as you describe it in the book, that's what motivates us. You know, I assume you agree with us on that. I'm with you on that. And the, the question is, what do you do about that? I think there are countries where that doesn't seem to be the perception. I'm sure there's some rent-seeking that goes on everywhere. Uh, I'm not that naive. Yeah, of course. But... You know, there are countries where I think the perception is that the government, uh, civil servants are there, they're competent, they're, they're doing their best to provide high-quality public goods at a fair price for society. There's not this deep, deep skepticism that seems to exist of government here, and I think you just have to see that as the fruit of a, a very long-standing effort to, to build a good government, to weed out corruption, to structure institutions in a way that provides checks against abuse in government. And and here we've we've not really embraced that task. We've we've sort of taken a negative view toward government. Uh smart people, ambitious people often don't want to serve in the government because it's not a a, a post in life that's entitled to much respect in our society. That's that's different in many other countries. So I yeah, think that's true. Yeah, you have to Ask yourself, do you want to have a government, yes or no? Uh, there's no society on earth that doesn't have one. If you didn't have one, you'd be invaded and pay taxes to somebody else's government. So so that's not an issue. And if you're going to have a government, you want to have a good government. And that takes a lot of work. Definitely and agree with that. the main thing, I think, that explains the kind of abuses that you and I find so so troubling is that we've allowed our system to become so heavily dependent on campaign contributions that, uh, sure, people are voting in a way that doesn't serve their constituents' interests. They've, they've got to 
cater to the the people who are funding their campaigns or they'll be unseated in the next round. So I think that's that's if you really want to build a better government, that's that's job one is to focus there. But I don't see anybody stepping up to to lead that charge. Well, there are a lot of people think that would work. I'm I'm a skeptic on that. I think the root of the problem is the ability of the government to hand out goodies without a constitutional constraint. So the the current system is awash in money. We agree on that. The question is why and would a constraint on – and well, the why is obvious. It's awash in money because people are trying to steer the system toward themselves or toward their ideology. It's not literal, always so uh, you know, pecuniary. But um, the, the question is what can you do about it that would be effective? And the question is if you have a government that's going to spend $3.7 trillion uh, and you tell people that, that they can't contribute to it, would – would there still be uh, the influence that you and I don't like? Uh, and a lot of it, of course, is, is not monetary. It's, it's subtler and stranger things. Um, the role of the Fed, for example, in awarding large sums of money to large financial institutions through its policies and behavior. I don't think uh, – you know, Ben Bernanke is not running for office. Campaign contributions don't have anything to do with it. It's a subtler form of influence and, and – um, uh, Lobbying that's that's destructive. Well, we we agree, though. I hope that uh, it ought to be a a project we could each get behind. That project of building a more honest and effective government. Yeah, we can agree on that, and I and I think well, well I, we may come back to that. So I think that's a a huge part of uh, what distinguishes where we think government can be effective. Uh, I think you're a little more optimistic than I am, but let's let's and I'd rather see government get better at what it does well rather than expand what it does. Uh, maybe we'll we'll have a chance to get into that. So let's talk about the the some of the big pictures in the book, big issues beside this this issue of ideology and mentality. Now the title of the book is the Darwin Economy, and you you have some provocative things to say about Darwin. Uh, why is Darwin relevant? Talk about what you see as the insight Darwin had into competition that's relevant for economics. Yeah, I, I start with a, a prediction that I won't live to see whether it comes true or not. I, I predict that if we were to poll professional economists a century from now about uh, who was the intellectual founder of the discipline, uh, I say we'd get a majority responding by naming Charles Darwin, not Adam Smith. Smith, of course, would be the name out of 99% of economists' mouths if you ask the same question today. My, my claim uh, behind that prediction is, is that uh, in time, not, not next year, not a decade from now probably, but in time we'll recognize that Darwin's vision of the competitive process was just a lot more accurate and descriptive than Smith's was. I, I, I say Smith's, I, I really mean Smith's modern disciples. Neoclassical. Neoclassical of the, economics. Of the economy. I think Smith was amazed that when you turn selfish people loose and, and let them seek their own interests, you often get good results for society as a whole from that process. I don't think anybody had quite captured the, the logic of that narrative uh, anywhere near as clearly as Smith had before he wrote. So it's a hugely important contribution. Uh, Smith however, didn't say you always got good results. Uh, he was quite circumspect about the claim. He, said, he, he seemed amazed that you often did. 
his reservations about markets, though, I think mapped very closely onto the kind of reservations you still see from pundits on the left. Uh, markets would be great, I think he would have argued, if they were truly competitive. Uh, however, there there were, he wrote, uh, actors with lots of market power. Whenever they got together, uh, their conversations would inevitably turn to conspiracies to defraud or bilk their workers and, and customers. And so you needed to have government to rein them in against the uh, ex- exploitation of people with their market power. Well, he was particularly interested in reigning in their ability to use the government, which is where uh, I think uh, the left and I part company, right? Yeah, all right. So that's that's a fair <laughs> point. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly grant you that, that he wasn't exactly on the same page with today's yeah. left. But he certainly he, – he understood that they were as self-interested and grasping as any yes, anybody. Of course. And, it's, yeah. and the question is what's the best way to protect people from that? And I think you need to add that uh, it was not Smith's vision of, of mankind that they were selfish and grasping. Absolutely not. Exclusively. You've read the theory of moral sentiments. Yep. Uh, so have I. Not too many economists <laughs> go back and read that these days. It's my but favorite Smith, book of Smith his. Smith knows or knew full well that uh, the economy would grind to a halt if people didn't have some moral fiber behind what they were doing out there in the marketplace. Absolutely. Okay, and they but, care about altruism and charity and helping others and being respected by their neighbor and all kinds of all things, those things besides just money. Yeah, you, you go back and read Smith, uh, it, it's amazing how well his insights all across the spectrum have held up. Where I think he he missed, uh, or, or at any rate his modern disciples have missed uh, a key feature of competition was he saw clearly in a way that I don't think others do yet that Competition favors individual actors. That's that's what it does. Correct. Sometimes uh, in the process, it helps the larger group, but there are lots and lots of instances in which competition actually works against the interests of the larger group. So a familiar example from the Darwinian domain is is the the kinds of traits that evolve to help individual animals do battle with one another for resources that that are important so think about uh, polygynous mating species the vertebrates for the most part uh, the males take more than one mate if they can uh, obviously the qualifier is important because if some, some take more than out, one yeah. mate you got others left with none and that's the ultimate loser position in the darwinian scheme of things you don't pass your stuff along into the next generation. So, so of course, the males fight with each other, and if if who wins the fight gets the mates, then uh, mutations will be favored that help you win fights. So, male body mass uh, starts to grow, not without limit, but uh, well beyond the point that would be optimal for males as a group. The the bull elephant seal weighs six thousand pounds. Uh, they they fight uh, with one another. Four or five hours on the beach, they leave one one other bloodied and exhausted, and one finally can't continue. The 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 victor claims a harem with a hundred cows, and the the mutation that made him a little bit bigger, and therefore in the winner slot in that fight, ends up in the pups of all those hundred cows, and so you get this runaway arms race that makes males too big from the perspective of males as a group. They'd be much much better off if they could push a button and be one-third their current body mass, but you know that's not something that they have as an option. 
Yeah, it's a it's a um, you keep going. I I, I want to talk a little bit about that the evolution and human comparison. Do you want to say anything else though before I... the you know of course there are other traits that mimic the invisible hand story. So so the the gazelle is fast. Uh, it got to be fast because it was chased down by cheetahs for the whole of its ev- evolutionary history. And if you weren't fast, you got eaten. And an ind- a mutation that makes the individual gazelle faster, that's good for that gazelle, but it's also good for the, the gazelles as a group as it spreads throughout their population. So, so sure, you get lots of results in the marketplace, too. You know, there's a cost-saving innovation. Somebody introduces it and does really well, uh, and then others begin to copy it, and it spreads throughout the marketplace, and the competition then drives price down to the the new lower cost made possible by the innovation, and it's the consumer who benefits from that, not the ultimately the, the firms once the dust settles. Right. So yeah, you you get you get Smith's story uh, in 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 broad stretches of market activity. There's no question that I think anybody who doesn't really understand the beauty of that narrative and the power of it to to explain why there's been so much material progress in the last 200 years just is missing a huge uh, component of, of human history. That's that's a hugely important story. Yeah, as a side note, I think it's about two-thirds of what economics has to contribute to human humankind, and it's striking to me how little we convey that said this before, but how little we convey that mystery and power to to our students. Uh, students just get out of out of our courses. They <laughs> they don't know that markets have that unbelievably powerful capacity to to get things like that done. And so, but that's only part of the story for you. Go I, ahead. I think you can't you can't stop there, and that's why I think Darwin eventually will have a much uh, more prominent place in, in economist thinking. The, there's lots of stuff in the marketplace where what counts is not how well you do, not, not the absolute quality of your performance, but, but the relative quality of it. And competition d- does spawn, as in the case of big antlers in the bull elk, large body mass in the bull elephant seals. There, there are many analogs to those arms races that we see in the market. Look, look, at, look at the financial services industry. You know, they're, they're hiring the smartest people we produce in the university system. Their task is to figure out when a price will move faster than the other people who are trying to solve that same problem. They've in, invested tens of million dollars in supercomputers. They've, they they crunch the numbers up, down, left, and right, and and the one who gets there fastest with the accurate price prediction makes a bundle of money. But that's not that's not social product. That's you know just money somebody else won't make. And you know those same people, those those best and brightest that were you know forty five percent of Princeton's graduating class takes a job in the financial services industry. The last year we have data. For from before the crash, those those are really smart people who could be doing something that you and I would benefit from. You and I are not benefiting when they help market a derivative security to somebody or, or help come up with an algorithm that's going to predict when the the price is going to move ten seconds before the second fastest algorithm does it. But Bob, 
Goldman Sachs chairman Lloyd Blankfein assures me they're doing the Lord's work. Uh, and, that, <laughs> and, 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 and I, I bet to, you're not reassured by I'm that. I'm not. And it's funny because I used to be. I used to think, well, I used to take that story you just told me, and I said, yeah, I disagree with you. And I'd say, well, it's true that there's these small movements in prices that, that people make money off of, but that's good because prices send signals and uh, it's important that the right prices be sent and the allocation of capital is crucial for productivity. The problem I, is – I agree completely. Of course. But the problem is is that we just spent a few trillion dollars on our housing stock, uh, which suggests that there's something deeply wrong with the allocation of capital within our financial system. It could just be a mistake. Some people defend it, it that way. No, it's it's not a mistake at all. I don't think so I mean, so we either. talked about the, the influence of money in the – in the political system, no, the the banking industry got deregulated. That was in large part, I think, because of uh, ties that politicians had to people in the banking industry. They, the banking industry got an incredibly high rate of return on the donations it made to the congressmen and senators who who acquiesced in the deregulation of the banking industry. But but once you started making credit available on the terms they were, uh, then I think the the Darwinian account gives you a, a, a very tidy narrative of how events unfolded. The, wow. the, the theoretical apparatus that Alan Greenspan brought to bear to think about that same uh, collection of activities left him high and dry. He was, he was flabbergasted. He testified in yes, he did. 2008 that he was shocked that people had behaved the way they did and been so irresponsible. He wouldn't have been shocked at all if he'd followed... The, the literature about how individual and, and group interests just don't coincide in situations like well, that. Well, I have to give a different interpretation of Greenspan's testimony. I, I paid close attention to that because it was a rare moment when someone said I, I, I was flabbergasted or confused or wrong. I, he, he said at the end of that testimony, I have to reexamine my beliefs. And he is portrayed, as you've portrayed him, uh, he universally almost portrayed as – a free market ideologue who refused to regulate when these excesses occurred. The problem with that interpretation is, is that he wasn't much of a free market ideologue when it came to bailout banks. He was a cheerleader. So I don't view him as much of a free marketer. Uh, he used free market rhetoric often, yes, to justify, uh, say, not regulating the derivatives market. He said, oh, no, those markets, I have to leave them alone. And yet when large creditors uh, found that they weren't going to collect their money, he bailed out the, those creditors – he supported the Mexican bailout, which was a bailout of American banks and others. He supported the long-term capital management. It wasn't a bailout by the government, but the orchestration of, of the rescue of people who had lent money to long-term capital management foolishly. He socialized the losses, and yeah, so yeah, yeah, you're you're right about each each of those points. The deregulation that people point to, there was some deregulation, but the government's hand was still involved in that market. And where we agree is. The political influence of those institutions. Of course, there's a different story. The different story, which I don't agree with, but the different story is that they're crucial. That there was that we had no choice. We were standing on the edge of a precipice. If we had let Mexico fail or long-term capital management, there would have been this horrible ripple effect. So you know, those people, they they don't. No one stands up in front of Congress. Here's what they never testify. They never say, "Well, yeah, I, I supported all those policies because I was getting a good deal from the people who kept me in power." That you never hear. They always say, I had to do it to save the country, had to protect you know, the, the credit markets from, from spiking, blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's a pretty – it's a nasty story. But, but look at the dynamic that was underway in the, in the housing bubble. I, that's where I think the Darwinian perspective shines relative to the, the Smith 
modern disciples' view of what was going on in that same market. So, I, how old was I when I bought my first house? I was in my late 20s. I remember at the time, I had to come up with 25% of the purchase price yep. before I could buy <laughs> buy that house. So I remember meant, my first house, too. Same it deal. It meant saving and doing without, and we did it. <laughs> and, and buying a smaller house than you'd prefer if you'd had your druthers, That's maybe. right. We we uh, we skimped, but we we did it. We, we were never in any danger of not, not being able to meet our mortgage payments. Fortunately, I was steadily employed throughout that time. But if, if we hadn't been able to pay our mortgage, it wouldn't have been a, a, a calamity for the bank because uh, the bank would have taken possession sold a house, of the lost house. A they bit. could have sold it for more than I owed on it. No, yep. There would have been no, nobody would have been panicking or, or running for the exits uh, as a result of any of that. And the reason for that was that the regulations required strict vetting of the mortgage applications. They required, required large down payments. Uh, there was stability in that system. One, once you lifted those restraints, you can make more money in a rising market by lending more money out. I mean, it's just the, the, the standard leverage argument. And so banks saw that they could bundle these securities and sell them. They, they could move a lot more uh, credit if they would relax the standards. So you think about the the homeowner who's trying to decide what to do, and here's where I think the the Darwinian uh, insight comes in full bore. They're letting people borrow more to buy houses. That means uh, people like me, people who are in the same income I do, can pay more for a house now than before they started relaxing those credit terms. How does that affect me? Well, you you could say, and it has been said, well, I should borrow prudently and not be affected by any of that. But I think that that's where I think the social dimension of our existence is so crucial, and and it's the one that the the invisible hand account doesn't doesn't take fully into the picture. So if I'm I'm a parent, I had two small kids when I bought my first house. My my main concern was that they go to a good school, and what's true in every city, everywhere in the world, is that the good schools are in the more expensive neighborhoods. There may be an exception you can find somewhere to that, but that, as a general rule, that's the way the world works. There's some variance, but on average, it's true. That's true in France, where the expenditure per pupil is exactly the same, no matter what the real estate prices are across areas, and the, and the kids are on the same page of the same curriculum all year long, still the schools in the good neighborhoods are better, uh, if, if only because the kids who go to them are advantaged. They're, it's a better learning environment. So every parent wants that. You want if you're if you're in the middle of the income distribution, say you're you're as a parent, you're going to at least have the goal of sending your kid to an average quality school. We'd think ill of you if you didn't have a, at least that ambition. Uh, probably you want to do better than average, but if you want to. Just meet the the standard. You've got to buy a house that is in the middle of the price distribution for your area. Others like you are spending more because the banks are letting them spend more. So what's your choice? You can either borrow more than would be comfortable for you to borrow and and match that that spending and hold your spot in the fiftieth percentile, or you can say no, I'm not. I'm going to be prudent. Uh, and in that case, it's your kids who'll go to the schools that have reading and math scores in the 20th percentile that have metal detectors out front. Uh, you know, we're not going to look down on a parent who says, well, I'm going to borrow, I'm going to get the house in the better school district, we'll worry later what to do 
if we if we don't have enough savings for retirement, if we don't uh, if we're not able to meet the mortgage, we'll we'll you know get a, a second job and and make ends meet somehow. That's the way the housing bubble unfolded. You know, wasn't people just with visions of sugar plums dancing in front of them, vaulted ceilings and granite countertops? It was people trying to keep up with what others were spending so they wouldn't fall behind in terms of where their kids went to school. That's that, part that, of it. I, I that was the account that. offered by uh, <clears throat> uh, the the two-income trap book that was out about seven or eight years ago. Where where did the second salary go? Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Amelia Warren Tyag, the authors, wanted to know. How come our parents could make ends meet on one salary back in the 50s and 60s? Now parents are in over their heads with two salaries and 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 they pointed out that the the extra salary went to into a bidding war for the houses in the better school districts it's part of it um so i think what's missing from that story is why banks were willing to lower those down payment claims from 20% to 10 to 3 and that initially started not the end but that initially started with a government initiative in the 90s to encourage homeownership and liberating Fannie and Freddie from the requirements that they uh, only lend to safe people at, with 20% down. Those, those were factors that and mattered too. And so uh, that, absolutely. that led to a flood of financing that wouldn't have occurred in a Smithian world. Now, it's true that the as the prices started to rise, the private sector without Fannie and Freddie's help did their contribution with the subprime part of it. Uh, so I certainly agree with that part. Well, but it wasn't just subprime, you know. We that's saw right. The no, same, that's my point. Same thing in, I agree. in the in the expensive housing market. No, I think the right makes the mistake in uh, blaming the subprime problem on Fannie and Freddie. The, the subprime problem was overwhelmingly the investment banks funding it. Although Fannie and Freddie bought a rather significant portion right. of their paper, the but. You can always say, well, somebody else would have bought it. It was so attractive at the time that their purchasing of 20 and 30 and sometimes more of uh, the mortgage-backed securities is is irrelevant because other investment banks would have bid for that. But I don't know. Anyway, I, I want to take your point about the bidding up of uh, housing prices and the school issue because you use an example in the book, which is a very uh, clean example of how – a Smithian like myself looks at the world, and sh- and then you make the case that that I'm missing something. So I want to take that and let's let's uh, talk about it. The example you use is is whether a firms offer the right amount of safety and the trade off between safety and compensation. So talk about that example, and then you can tie it back into the housing because that's the, that's the way you talk tell it in the book. Yeah, here here's where I think the. Both the left and the right, in in the most popular narratives they spin nowadays, miss miss the essential uh, forces that are going on in these decisions. So, so the left will say we need to regulate safety because powerful employers would otherwise force their workers to work under unconscionably dangerous conditions. Uh, that that's an argument that I, I think clearly fails what I call the no cash on the table test. Safety is a is a cost benefit question. Uh, a lot of people object to that way of thinking about it, but there's there's no way 
to think intelligently about safety investments if you don't weigh costs and benefits. Uh, If you you talk to somebody who says we shouldn't be talking about safety decisions and cost-benefit terms, here are two questions I, I would suggest you ask. Did you get your break checks breaks checked on the way to work this morning? Uh, most people will say no, but a, a tiny handful will say, yeah, I did. Uh, second question, do you plan to get them checked again tomorrow? Uh, no rational person would say yes to both, both of those questions. You know, you check your brakes once a year or whatever the, the standard is uh, that you adopt because it's just too expensive to check them every day or twice a day. You weigh, you weigh costs, you weigh benefits, you, you make accommodations just because safety isn't the only thing you care about. You get risks down to a prudent level, and then you spend the money you save by not focusing all your effort on getting them down further on, on other things that you value more. And that's wise. I mean, no that, one disputes that's it. Absolutely that's absolutely proper. Yeah. That's the, that's the, the only uh, accommodation a person could make to that kind of problem. Now, one of the reasons I think that people have trouble with this issue uh, on the left, I think there's other reasons. You, you know, you talk about in the book the, the, the idea, this idea that that people aren't aware of maybe of the risks. That, that's always a possibility. That's but, true in some cases, but and it's, certainly is it's true in not some the cases. general problem that we face. But I think I think the issue that people struggle with is they want to know whether their car is safe, and the economist perspective is. It's not a zero one. It's not safe or unsafe. No right. job is safe or unsafe. There's degrees to say of safety, and the more safe you want it to be, the more expensive it is. And so once you say that, there's a trade off. And that's I think so. People would say, "I want a safe job. No job should be unsafe." But of course, yeah. the only safe job is the one you don't go to. So, so <laughs> many Staying on the left, the I think, job. don't understand that point, uh, and they want to regulate safety because they think if you don't regulate it. The employer is going to take advantage of the worker because and agreed. They want to make they can the, make more the money Smith by not story is a is a very powerful rejoinder to that that claim by people on the left. So, what would Smith say to that? Well, look, uh, safety devices in the workplace cost money. Uh, if you value one at let's say a hundred dollars a week, uh, it'll the 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 guard on the saw blade that's going to keep you from getting your hand cut off when you're working in this factory, you'd pay 100 a week to, to have the protection it, it offers you. It's, wor- it's worth that much to you. The cost of putting one on there, let's say it's 50 a week. Uh, now the, the pundit on the left wants to say we have to require that it, it be installed because otherwise the powerful firm would just refuse to install it because he has power. What what that claim completely elides is the is the obvious objection that well look the employer wouldn't want to have that saw without a, a blade guard because he could pay you a hundred dollars a week less if he put one on that's the value you assign to it you'd be willing to move to a job that paid you seventy five dollars a week less rather than stay in your current job that refused to put a saw blade guard on there and so. You know, there there's a there are forces in the marketplace that will push the employer to install a, a safety device on a machine where the benefit exceeds the cost of it, just because you would you'd have an incentive to move otherwise. Uh, if there's no place you could move to, he'd still want to do it because he could cut your salary, and you'd agree 
rather than than continue working with the condition that didn't suit you. So that that's where that's where I think the less view of this problem utterly fails the no cash on the table objection. If the employers were doing what the left says they're doing, there'd be cash on the table. Some other employer could come in and cherry-pick the best workers out of the dangerous factory just by installing safety devices that were worth more to the workers than their cost. The other, so, part, of, the other part of that story, of course, is that a safety device that is too expensive won't be installed. So it right. will install the ones that are wise to install, and it'll fail to install the ones that and, we wouldn't it, want to install. And, and that story points you to the, the level of safety that will emerge in an employer-managed uh, workplace that would be exactly the same as the level of safety you'd see if individuals were self-employed. You know, they would confront the same cost-benefit question, whether to put a saw blade guard on the machine they're working on, and it would, they would compare the costs and benefits the same as would happen under market competition. Okay, now, but, but you argue there's more to the that, story. So that's the story the left doesn't understand. What I think the right uh, doesn't acknowledge is that it's not just absolute value of safety versus absolute value of wage income. If if you think about the worker's decision, should I should I take a riskier job? Well, I can get more money if I do. Why would I want more money? Well, I want more money because maybe the, the extra absolute quality of the goods I buy will give me additional utility. That's the standard Adam Smith story. What's really important that's left out of that story is that you value the extra income, not just for the extra absolute consumption, but also for the extra relative consumption. So think about a worker who takes a riskier job, earns 100 a week more in salary. That's $100 a week he can take and bid for a house in a better school district. He's, he's got now some leverage. He can move his kids up in the hierarchy. But since that's a decision that any other worker is free to take too, uh, the 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 equilibrium in that game is one in which all workers sell more safety than they would as individuals, and the extra money goes into a bidding war for the houses in the better school districts. And when the dust settles, the only thing they've managed to achieve by doing that is to bid up the prices of the houses in the better school districts. And they're stuck with less safety than that. And they've got less safety than they would have chosen if they'd been on a desert island uh, making that decision in isolation. So so the fact that they might want to endorse safety regulation, they know they know things would be better if we were all working under safer conditions, so we're going to regulate. That's the only way we can get there. It's it's like Tom Schelling's example of the hockey players who who when they they have the right to skate without a helmet, they always skate bareheaded uh and yet he noted they they would always vote unanimously in a secret ballot for a rule requiring helmets. Uh, and his explanation was exactly parallel. He said that when you're free to take your helmet off, you get a competitive edge by doing that. The other side's got a match because they don't want uh, to lose a competitive edge. And the equilibrium is everybody skating without a helmet, everybody facing more risk. The only way you solve that problem, he noted, was to have a rule. You can't just post a sign in the locker room saying, caution, skating without a helmet could injure you. Uh, they know that. So it's, I, the, it's the fact that the competitive edge trumps that worry about safety. 
Well, I'm going to disagree with Schelling, and then I want to come back and disagree with, with you about, okay. the, about the safety Th- and the This worker. will be good. I, th- I hope. We'll see I how it goes. I, I think there's two ways to get to the helmet law. And by the way, the helmet law is, as you said, it's a rule. It's not a law. Right. It's, uh, it's voluntarily imposed by the league. It voluntarily yeah, you're, is, you're free to form a league of right, your own. Which is harder to do Absolutely. for all kinds of reasons. And so you know, I concede that point. But I think the deeper point is that there's a second way to get to that, which is culture. And Eleanor Ostrom's work uh, in the tragedy of the commons is it shows different ways that culture and norms evolve to solve these problems of externalities, in her case, the tragedy of the commons. To take an example, when I was a kid, if you wore a helmet riding a bike, you'd be laughed at. Um, this would be 1963, say, mm-hmm. when I was nine years old. If you're, if my parents, and you know, similarly, as I probably mentioned on the program before, when we rode around on our cross country trips, uh, I lay down in the back window, <laughs> in the flat part yeah. behind the back seat, and we used to fight as kids. My sister and brother, my sister and I, before my brother was born, we used to fight over who would get the window seat, and that didn't mean sitting next to the window. It meant laying down in the back. Above the, the, the shelf, back seat, the back, yeah. on the back shelf, and today, my parents thought nothing of that. Uh, today, if you did that, you'd be viewed as uh, a candidate for uh, having your kids taken away from you by right. family services right. uh, because you're abusive. So culture changes. So which, which was better? Which was better? The the old days like that, or now when if your kid's not strapped in, they'll give you a ticket. Well, I don't need the ticket. My claim is there's two ways to get to a world where kids are safer, and there's two ways to get to a world where hockey players are safer, and there's two ways to get to a world where everybody wears a bike helmet. Every every nine-year-old today wears a bike, almost every one of them, and it's not because there's a law. It's because the cultural norm has evolved that says if you don't do that, you're a bad parent. Uh, and but But having said that, I, I just mentioned that because I think it's important to say there are other ways to get to some of these to solve these problems and work. And I, I completely agree. And sometimes doing it informally in that way is better. So I'm gonna, Not I, always. I know. So I'm going to try to make the claim it's almost always. And I'll use your safety example as, as the, the worker housing story. So um, let's, let's say I agree with you. And I certainly do agree with you, by the way. That some of my demand for higher income is not going to work out the way I think it will. Um, and I'll keep, even concede another point, which you make in the book, which you don't, you didn't make in our conversation, which is, you know, sometimes you make more money, you take the harder job, you take the less safe job, and it lets you buy the bigger screen TV or the bigger house. And it's not just this fact that we're, there's a zero sum game for the good schools. There's a limited number of spots. It's the fact that, you know, money doesn't always make you happy. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with that point. And Adam Smith, of course, in the theory of moral sentiments, preached that point. Uh, he didn't want the government to solve it. He wanted to encourage people to think more carefully about how happy they'd be if they traded away their leisure or their serenity for a harder job. Well, he also proposed taxes on various luxury items because he, he thought that if people consumed less of them, it wouldn't really be a wouldn't very be a big, big sacrifice. That's you, correct. You could use the revenue for useful things. That's correct. Uh, so, so I can let's concede that point. We agree on that. Uh, and I, where we disagree, by the way, on that that 
piece of the story is I think it's absurd and a horrible form of public policy that if you want a good school, you have to buy a house in the neighborhood of that school. And I'd get rid of the public school system. I'd get rid of the the mortgage interest deduction that would reduce some of this. Uh, And certainly the getting rid of the school system connection to neighborhood would solve some of that problem. And I think that'd be a better way to solve it. I would applaud each of those efforts, but I would caution you not to be too optimistic about severing the link about between where you live and how good the school is your kid goes to. Why? I just think there's a, a very powerful demand on the part of the people who are in a position to secede from the school system that well, their kids true. be able to go to school somewhere close by and convenient. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, but I'm not sure that would change... If that's the only thing going on, uh, if we had a public, if we had a private school system, government was out of schooling, it's true there'd be a correlation between housing prices and quality of school, perhaps, but for a bunch of reasons. But it wouldn't be the one that we're talking about, which is that the only way to go to a good school is to live near it. So, but let's put that to the side. Yeah. Let's put that to the side. I think that here's the more interesting issue for me. So I'm going to I'm concede your point. I'm going to concede that there's a, a in. Given the constraints of the current public school system, it is certainly true that we have created – it's a tragedy of the commons, an externality, uh, or what, you, what you call an inefficiency. That, that in my trying to decide the trade-off between safety and compensation, I'm forced through my own self-interest to pursue a mix – that is not ideal because the extra income doesn't necessarily buy me what I think it's going to buy me. So let's say that's true. Here's my two challenges to you. The first one is, if that's imp- the first one is, what's the magnitude? That's a crucial question, right? When you talk about the relative importance of Darwinian versus this Smithian competition, ver- relative versus absolute improvements. So if it's if it's a small magnitude, it's not so important. If it's a big magnitude, it is important. First thing I point out is that if you look at the secular trend, meaning the trend over time and workplace safety, there's a long steady fall in it, excuse me, fall in mortality and fatalities and injuries. The workplace has gotten safer and safer in the United States long before the government got involved, long before OSHA was involved in 1970. So the Smithian forces are still pretty powerful. And it's the second point, unfortunately. I don't deny that for a, a moment, by the way. I mean, Safety is a normal good. We're way richer than we used to be, and one of the things you want more of when you get richer is safety. Yeah, and and you and I work in jobs that are way safer than required by OSHA regulations. And and part of the by the way, if you look at that secular trend, that trend over time, part of the reason that fewer people die on the job is that, as you say, we take safer jobs. Fewer people work in the mines. Fewer people work in factories. More people work at desk jobs. But even within the dangerous jobs. It's safer. Mining right. is safer. No, that, that's true. And that trend started before regulation. The fundamental issue, and I think what really distinguishes – so we could debate you know, how big this, th- these, these factors are. The biggest problem I have is that even if I concede your point that they're significant, where is the evidence that government's going to pick the right level of safety? So you, wanna, you don't want to let the invisible hand pick it. Okay. I understand the argument. It's not – the invisible hand doesn't, doesn't uh, pick the perfect mix. Why would I think government could do it better? And how would it possibly do that given the – how would it possibly set 
the quote right level of safety given the issues that you're worried about? You know, there there could be all sorts of interesting design issues involved in the question of how to regulate safety if you think there's even a, a theoretical case that the the market level might be suboptimally low. Uh, I'll, I'll grant you all the objections you'd be inclined to make about how how ill-equipped OSHA might be to solve that problem on a case-by-case basis. And how it might listen to the more powerful yeah, interests so rather than the You, you would need Frank. to evaluate whether the proposed solution was going to be any better than doing nothing. I think that's always got to be the test for any government intervention. It's not... I, I, I have a... a, a constant challenge to persuade students that they're not done when they've merely succeeded in demonstrating that the current equilibrium might not be socially optimal. Uh, that doesn't mean that any old intervention is going to make matters better. You've got, to, you've got to begin with the assumption that government's imperfect, too, and whatever intervention they mount might be worse than, than doing nothing. That's absolutely a, a valid point. Is there any evidence uh, that, that, in, that injury taxes? You know the fact that I mean we have uh, the workman's compensation insurance program that's experience rated. Uh, there, there are sort of more flexible price based ways to stimulate the the provision of additional safety that do, do not prescribe in in comp- command and control form uh, and possibly run up against a lot of waste uh, of that familiar sort. Yeah, that, that that's all properly on the table for discussion. I'm just trying to achieve a much more modest uh, objective, which is to say we need to have that discussion. And I think so many on the right say uh, government has no right to even to, to consider intervening in workplace safety decisions. That's uh, and it's very powerful rhetoric that the right has. Why? Why should the government step between me and my employer? We're free individuals. Why can't we sign a contract where I agree to accept the work and and whatever risks go with it freely of my own accord? If the employer agrees and I agree, who else is affected by that? That's a pretty powerful argument when you hear it. But what it leaves out is the fact that when I make that choice. I get a leg up on others in my ability to bid for the house in the better school district. So others are involved in that choice. No doubt. Therefore, it's proper to think about whether there's anything that can or should be done. That's that's my objective here. I don't want to say this particular intervention necessarily makes matters better. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, and, and I think the left me- needs to be far more attentive to design issues and regulation and, and less uh, presumptuous that intervening will will make matters better no matter what. So let's come full circle. Um, and we've left a lot of issues undiscussed. Maybe we can come back and do another one if you're interested. I, but I'd be delighted to do another one anytime. The, but I want to come full circle. I want to come back to this issue I raised earlier, which which is relevant given what you just what you just said. Um, you know, my counter to that would be. Well, we have a track record of what government's done, and it has done it very well. A lot of what government does in the name of helping the consumer, restraining various things, actually rewards politically powerful folks rather than the goals that you and I would like it to do. And so my challenge to the left and to you on this issue, and I would add in uh, a related issue of of government spending generally, is – 
I think the biggest challenge is if you're going to make the case the government should have a broader role, you've got to convince me that it can do it more effectively. Take an example you mentioned in the book a number of times. You argue in the book multiple places that we need to spend more on infrastructure. But government spending on infrastructure has been rising for the last 25 years, and that's that's before – the stimulus spending and whatever the president proposes tonight. We're recording this on on Thursday, September 8th. The president's going to make a speech tonight. I think he's going to propose some infrastructure spending. So it's you can argue that there are bridges and roads that need work. But for some reason, uh, spending a ever-increasing amount of GDP has failed to do it effectively. And I think the challenge is how do you get government to spend its money wisely? And if you could do that, you might get me to be more cheerful about when government gets bigger. So, so we want a more effective government. Yes. Yeah, how I, do we? I've, so how do we do that? And, and, and do I we think, have any evidence that we know how to do that? Well, we know that some governments are, as, as we said at the top of the conversation, some governments are viewed by their citizens as effective. Uh, people have very positive attitudes toward their governments and the role that they play in their lives. And I think uh, it would be worth studying. What's the difference? What do they do that 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 we do differently, and and try to try to learn about that? Because again, I don't think the option of having no government is one that anyone, on reflection, would favor. The the interventions that I push in the book, by the way, are are uh, very much in the spirit of trying to give people the maximum amount of flexibility to decide for themselves how to respond to the externalities that are that are causing trouble. The the main policy intervention I I I push in the book is uh to scrap the income tax altogether. It's a tax on on savings in addition to uh, a tax on consumption. We don't save enough, why should we right, be it's a subsidy. saving? It's a, it's a relative subsidy to consumption. Which is yeah, get, as you say, get rid of the mortgage deduction, get rid of all all these these uh, features in the tax code, and raise the revenue you need from a, a, a steeply progressive consumption tax. You report your income to the IRS the same as now. You document how much you save during the year. We know how to do that too for four hundred one ks and similar accounts. The difference, income minus savings, that's what you spent. During the year, and you don't pay much tax on that if you're if the number's small. But as the number grows beyond a million, two million, three million, the marginal rate on the next dollar you spend can can rise to to much higher levels than we have under the current income tax. And that indirectly would be a a, a push toward greater safe, safety. You know, you would have less. Uh, Spending on mansions by the people at the top, if they had a, a, a steep marginal tax rate on extra consumption, it would be more attractive to put the the two million you would have spent on a new wing for your mansion, put half of that into your savings account tax free, and build a smaller addition to your mansion. And if you you and others did the same thing, then when the dust settled, you'd discover you weren't any less happy than if you'd all built the bigger wing because it was the it was the social context that made the big, bigger wing seem necessary in the first place. You wouldn't have to spend ten million dollars on your kid's coming of age party if you were a billionaire. Uh, Nine million would be good hmm. enough, or two million even, and the kids wouldn't be any less happy. You know, the standard would just shift accordingly. So, so that's a tax change that uh, 
I, I think people on the right ought to be in favor of that. In fact, I wrote an article about it about 15 years ago, and by return mail almost, when it was published, I got a nice warm letter from Milton Friedman. And Milton said, look, I don't agree with you that the government should be raising more revenue right now. Uh, and this was back when the budgets were edging into surplus. So, so yeah, it was not the same circumstance we're in now. But he did say that if the government needed more revenue, the tax I proposed would be the ideal way to raise it. And then he enclosed in his envelope with the letter a reprint of his article from the 1943 volume of the American Economic Review, where he had proposed uh, an expenditure tax as the best way to pay for the World War II effort. So I think there's some common ground here. Uh, you 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 want to use the price system to solve problems when you can, not detailed prescriptive bureaucratic regulation. I think the the right has a a rich set of insights along those lines that the left can learn from. But the right needs to learn too that individual interest expressed in unfettered markets doesn't always produce outcomes that are best from the the perspective of the group, and that's the that's the Darwinian understanding of competition that I think is, is, is currently lacking in our view of things. Well, again, I think I'd concede your point that sometimes we choose things that aren't good for us as a group, but the question is how whether we can improve on them. Right. And I certainly, uh, I would certainly prefer a consumption tax that replaced the income tax rather than augmented it. I think our disagreement would be on the steepness of the progressivity and the size of the rates, right? Because I think we probably would disagree on how much revenue should be raised. Uh, but, you know, the, um, I think the fu- underlying point we overwhelmingly agree on is setting prices to steer, letting people steer themselves rather than that bureaucratic uh, top down approach. Right. And I think what economists can do effectively as technocrats, which is very limited, but I think the part we can do effectively is to offer to the political process those schemes and, uh, possible ways of solving problems that maybe people haven't thought of the using prices in effective ways. Uh, the problem is the political system is not always so interested in that. The, the, you know, the SO2, sulfur dioxide, uh, tradable permits is a rare moment where, right, the, but, where the political but when, when we have broken through, remember it's 30 good. years ago it's when good. that was first proposed, <laughs> they were saying, oh, the economists are, are saying we should let rich, rich firms pollute to their heart's content by buying permits. You know, the, the, the bizarre model of firm behavior implicit in that remark. I mean, yeah. the firms want to pollute. That's yeah. why they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, we, we, made we some broke progress. through on that. We made some progress. It, it was a huge success story. <laughs> Congestion pricing, when we've tried that, it's been a huge success story. So I think, I think that's the margin we want to try to join hands and work on. Sounds good. My guest today has been Robert Frank. Bob, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Always fun to talk with you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.